This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. The word notwithstanding is out there for us to use any day we want. It's there. Well, notwithstanding, and it, it can kind of make you sound really intelligent. Well, notwithstanding, and then you could move on and, and talk about something else. It's also a very interesting tool that is there in government. And it appears to be one that the provincial government is all set to make use of. There is legislation reportedly being introduced today. I'm not sure whether it has been introduced, but at some point today. And it would invoke the notwithstanding clause. And this goes back to a decision earlier this week, it would appear. But instead of me trying to get my head around this, let's talk with someone who already has their head around this and many other political issues. Dr. Christopher Alcantara joins us, professor and chair of the graduate program in the Department of Political Science at Western University. Dr. Alcantara, thank you so much for taking some time for us. Oh, good afternoon. I would like to be able to use the word notwithstanding in a in a very high-end discussion sometime, but I'm not even going to attempt that right now. Let's talk about what the notwithstanding clause is all about. Why does this even exist? Well, there was cons- when the, the, the Charter of Rights was created in 1982, there was concern that uh, it would strip away a number of powers that the legislatures, uh, you know, Parliament and the legislative assemblies have always had. So it was a, a safety valve that allowed uh, legislative assemblies to ensure that sometimes the courts don't make the bad decisions that might infringe upon what legislatures are supposed to address, which are political issues. And so in, and that's why they included it. It allows uh, a, a, a legislative assembly to basically ignore a judicial decision that relates to sections 2 and 7 to 15 of the Charter for five years, and then after five years it expires, and the ruling goes back into, into place. So you have a judicial decision, someone who's looked at a lot of things, has taken a lot into account, has rendered a decision, this is what we believe is right, and then the government has the ability to say, yeah, gotcha, but no, we're just going to do what we want. Is that too blunt? Uh, no, that, that's sort of right. Uh, well, that, that is actually right. Because uh, yeah, if you think about this decision, you know, the, we have Parliament or we have the Legislative Assembly of, of Ontario saying, what do we think uh, should the rules be around democracy and donations and political campaigns, you know, which is a political decision, and it, it passed the law. In this case, the court is ruling on whether or not you know, this political law uh, makes sense. And the legislature says, well, actually, you know, you know, we don't think you're right. Uh, and that's how democracies work, you know, that uh, the legislatures and courts should be able to talk about and, and debate particular issues that are, that are of a political nature. We are talking with Dr. Christopher Alcantara, professor and chair of the graduate program in the Department of Political Science at Western University. We're looking at the notwithstanding clause. So you mentioned this has something to do with political donations. What are we examining if we look at this particular case? What's happening here? Well, the the big concern, the, the, the law that the Ontario government passed was called the Ontario Elections Act, and uh, or it amended the Ontario Elections Act. Uh, to basically, there's a rule there that says that uh, third party, so any other party that's not a political party, is uh, limited to spending up to uh, $600,000 uh, 
six months prior leading up to an election. So it was, it was about putting constraints on the ability of non-political parties, so businesses, unions, to spend on uh, camp on, on basically uh, election election advertising. And the, the and so what the government did was it, it changed this this law to make it from six months to twelve months. So it says rather than just limiting spending in six months, let's make it for a whole year. And so people are, are wondering, well, is this a political move, which it, it, it clearly is, uh, because, you know, the, the worry is that the unions will, will spend tons of money over the next uh, year to try and defeat the Conservatives in the next election. So this would try and limit them from spending that money then, or give them less ability to spend large amounts of money, is that it? Exactly. You know, it's about ensuring that, uh, you know, third parties like unions or businesses can't run huge ads that attack, you know, uh, in this case, the conservative government. Right. I suppose there is a, a question as to whether they should be allowed to do that anyway. Right. I mean, that's that's uh, that's the big question, right? So some people think that yeah, we should just let, let it should be a free for all, right? That unions and businesses and whoever else has lots of money should be able to uh, have their say, have their speech about what they you know what they think about the parties, what they think about the leaders. And there's others who say, well, that's not really fair, right? Is it really fair that corporations and unions can, you know, who have lots of money, that they can spend whatever they want to influence the elections, and, and those of us who don't belong to those groups don't have that right to do so? So there's a, there's a debate here, for sure. And the question, you know, the one question is, who should be debating that? Should it be, you know, the courts? You know, or we have one, you know, one or two or three unelected judges making these decisions? Or should it be the parliament? You know, or should it be the legislative assembly where you know these kinds of political issues can be debated and discussed and voted on? Dr. Christopher Alcantara joining us, professor and chair of the graduate program in the Department of Political Science at Western University. As we talk about the government introducing legislation today to make use of the notwithstanding clause, and this is at the provincial level, is there precedent for who should look after a, a discussion like that? Can we look and say, yeah, well, this place has done this, or this government has done this, anything like that? Well, I mean, the, the notwithstanding clause has been has not really been used very much, and that's partly because uh, uh, it was used twice uh, early on in its when it when it when it was first created. It was used by in Saskatchewan to to prevent um, to insulate uh, le- legislation to force people back to work to force unionized workers who might be striking back to work. Uh, and it was used in Quebec to protect a French language sign law that said, you know, the French language should be double the size of English on signs, and the court was going to strike it down. And so the legislature inserted Section 33, the notwithstanding clause, to basically prevent that. And so, you know, people looked at those decisions and say, oh, you know, that was really bad. Uh, You know, people didn't like it. And so the Section 33, the notwithstanding clause, hasn't really been used very much because of that of that precedent. But, you know, it's in the Constitution. It's in the it's in the Constitution. And so, you know, this is perfectly valid in terms of what the government wants to do. And so it'll be the first time that Ontario Ontario uses it. But, you know, I, I think it's perfectly legitimate for the for the for the government to do it, even though, you know, it's clearly a, a political move from the conservatives to try and limit criticism from the unions, the teachers. Right. Unions, I suppose we could look at that where, yes, those other decisions have a, a political element to them. This seems to be a, a strategic move, almost. Absolutely, this is a, a clearly a, a strategic move. Now, it doesn't mean it's a bad idea because it's not like they're saying we're only going to limit unions uh, to spending six hundred thousand, you know, over over twelve months. Uh, it's all 
all non-political parties. So it's going to be unions, but it's also going to be corporations. Uh, and there are a number of groups that have emerged in the last election that you know that are funded by corporations that have put out ads attacking you know various parties. So in that sense, you know, yeah, the the, the intentions are evil, <laughs> or maybe not evil. The intentions are self-serving for the conservatives, but you know, from a from a democratic standpoint, I mean, it, it is somewhat defensible to think because it's it's banning donations or banning uh, spending. Sorry, third party spending for everyone who's not a political party. Dr. Alcantara, thank you for explaining this for us. I understand it so much better. All right. Well, thanks for having me on. Really appreciate the time. Okay. Bye-bye. That's Dr. Christopher Alcantara, professor and chair of the graduate program in the Department of Political Science at Western University. And it brings up the question, is it fair for a company, an organization, to be able to create an ad that does attack you know, we can all look and say, is it fair? And you may have gone through this at various times in your life. I've never been through it. So help me out if you can. But if you are by work, through your job, part of a union or part of an organization that would say, here is how we vote in this next election. This is the way to vote in this next election. I'm not a fan of that. I really am not. Let's look at COVID-19 for a minute. We haven't spent a lot of time on COVID-19, but because we're in a position right now where we're heading toward, again, hopefully a more positive situation where you can go and sit on a patio, table of four, where you can make use of retail to a greater extent, where in 21 days from tomorrow, hopefully, haircut, gym, what do you think? There will be practicing that starts up tomorrow for kids' sports. All of those things are encouraging signs. So we do need to know where we sit in terms of variants, sure. The Premier talks a lot when he talks about variants. We do need to look at our strategy going forward, and we have an opportunity to do that with Dr. Suman Chakrabarty. Dr. Chakrabarty is the division head of infectious diseases at Trillium Health Partners in Mississauga, but used to work here in London at the Lawson Research Institute and also is a graduate of Western University. And we had a chance to talk with Dr. Chakrabarty and ask him just plainly and simply how things were going. He's going well, getting better as the days go on. Yeah, it seems like that. One of the things that we had brought up in a recent Middlesex London Health Unit briefing was the Delta variant. What do we know about the Delta variant and and how things are progressing with that variant in Canada? Yeah, so the Delta variant uh, is just another version of the uh, COVID virus. looks like it uh, originated in India. And the long and short of it is it has a couple of key mutations that, number one, make it more transmissible, very similar to what we saw with the, uh, I guess now the alpha variant uh, in, in the UK. And it also has uh, some changes in the uh, spike protein that make it a little bit avoidant of uh, vaccines, but certainly nothing that would uh, uh, cause any major alarm. And it has spread quite quickly in India, with, with what we saw there. 
And now, you know, not surprisingly, we have a lot of people um, from India in our country, and we're seeing it circulating here as well. So it's something that certainly we have to keep an eye on. When we're looking at data, everybody wants answers now. Okay, well, is this one worse than this one? So is it different than B117? Is it more transmissible? How hard is it to get and analyze the data that's coming in to know just how each of these variants is acting and reacting? Well, I think that that's a, it's a really good point that uh, uh, we're learning about this as time goes on. So it's important to realize that. It's also important to realize, though, that so this is something uh, is a natural part of viral uh, propagation. We see these variants arise, and I think what happens is that uh, the public uh, generally that don't have training in virology or infectious diseases, they're trying to really, really pay attention to all this stuff as if it's something new and novel. But it's We're at a time right now where we have almost 70% vaccine coverage uh, with one dose in Ontario, and that it makes it a completely different ballgame compared to three months ago when B117 was, was uh, on the rise. So, obviously, we're in, we're in a better spot. One of the things that was mentioned by our local chief medical officer of health was that the Delta variant, it's, it's always better to have two doses of a vaccine. So if we're looking at the strategy that's been laid out, Dr. Chakrabarty, do we have to talk about our strategy in Ontario and and how things are going in order to account for any of these variants? Or do you see things being able to move ahead as they have been? I think I'm a mixture of both, actually. I think that the answer to these variants, as they, they sound scary, but they actually really aren't. It's something that vaccination will deal with. And I certainly do think that, you know, really coordinating getting those second doses in is important. I will say one interesting thing, though. There has been the narrative with this uh, Delta variant that it somehow is not working. It is the first dose of vaccine. One dose of vaccine doesn't work very well. The number we saw in their data was 33%. So the thing is, that was looking at all comers. We don't know about what's happening with severe disease. So if I get a whole bunch of people with one dose of vaccine and they get a runny nose, I'm okay with that. As long as people are not being admitted to hospital and especially the ICU, and I'm very skeptical that that's not happening. I do think even one dose of vaccine is really protecting people. That's good to know. It's it's good to hear when someone like you is saying things like that. We're talking with Dr. Suman Chakrabarty, who is the division head of infectious diseases at Trillium Health Partners, Mississauga Hospital. So we're we're always wondering that if if you do have one dose, the thought is, hey, we we've, we've still got to be really careful, and we know that because we don't have the data. But in terms of of what, let's say. 30% protection means or 60% protection. What does that actually indicate? Basically what it is, to, to put things roughly, it's uh, when you look at the amount of reduction that you see, it's being expressed as a percentage of the baseline level of infection if you didn't have the vaccine. Uh, so basically you're comparing two populations, a vaccinated one and a non-vaccinated one, and you're kind of like uh, coming up with the percent reduction. It's actually kind of looking at the people, it's working a bit backwards. People who actually get sick with COVID and you look at the proportions of people who had the vaccine and didn't. So we do expect, yeah, there's going to be people that have one dose of vaccine and are hospitalized. We see that even now. But you just have to remember, looking at the population level, 
um, even though I think it's much better than 33%, a 33% vaccine efficacy is what we see sometimes with influenza. We know that that vaccine works well. So I think that we've been spoiled with some of these numbers, but the point is the vaccine works and it really is going to change the face of what we're seeing that I don't think is necessarily going to be that big of a threat. We have to be careful about it. Dr. Chakrabarty, one of the things that we do wind up hearing is that there could be a fourth wave. It's not a guarantee, but there could be. What are your feelings on what you're seeing with regard to a fourth wave or, or other outbreaks? I certainly think that there is going to be more outbreaks, um, especially um, what we see kind of with measles is that you see people that the pockets of unvaccinated people, especially the high risk settings like high-density living conditions and work conditions. So that's kind of what we're seeing right now with the Delta variant in parts of England. Uh, and that's why, again, it's important to cover people with the vaccine. I do think that there will be a fourth wave, but a fourth wave will be fundamentally different. As we've gone on with vaccine coverage, we're seeing what we call an uncoupling of cases and hospitalization. So there's lots of there's cases still, but a tiny proportion of them now are hospitalized compared to before. And the other thing is the people who are getting COVID, the vaccines defang the virus. So what you're getting, rather than being hospitalized, is a runny nose and fever. And I think that we can all agree that's a good trade-off. And that's what we have to remember. That any of this stuff that we have in the community, restrictions, was all based on uh, saving the hospital system. If we now have a vaccine that's going to prevent hospitalization, that's our ticket out of further lockdown. And that's what I think is going to happen. Even if we have a fourth wave, we're not going to have to go in lockdown. Love that prediction. Dr. Suman Chakrabarty joining us, Division Head of Infectious Diseases at Trillium Health Partners, Mississauga Hospital. One final thing, and that is, is there anything that is concerning you? Because when someone is dealing in infectious diseases on a day-to-day basis, is there anything you're looking at thinking, okay, this is something I'm paying attention to right now? Absolutely. I think it is important for us to keep an eye on these, on these variants. These, these variants are important things for us to consider. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's very unlikely we're going to suddenly get a variant that's going to be completely evasive of infection. But at some point, we will have to pivot and uh, perhaps do a booster shot a couple of years down the road. It's going to be important for us to keep an eye on high-risk settings and uh, contain outbreaks as they happen, just like we did before. But I think one of my biggest things I'm, I'm worried about is that, you know, I really think that we need to start opening up and doing it in a careful, graduated way. And if we're constantly afraid of every little variant that happens, I'm just worried about being caught in a cycle of, uh, you know, delayed lockdowns going on, going on in the future. I think that we really have to not undersell these vaccines. We're in an amazing spot right now, and I really do think that we can go back to normal in a a few months. We just have to be decisive about it. And I guess you bring up one last point, and that is we may need a booster down the line. There is a lot of wondering about once you get your second vaccination, once you get your second dose, how long you're good to go. Do we know anything concrete about that yet? Uh, we, we don't because we don't have, obviously, this is such a new virus, but, you know, based on our experience from previous uh, viruses and also coronaviruses, that we know that, yes, while antibodies do wane with time, you do have something called a memory T-cell response. It's a 
big branch of the immune system that's not easy to, uh, uh, not as easy to study. But we've seen people that have had uh, SARS-1, for example, and 17 years later, they still have a good immune response to it. So I think that just to put all that in perspective, I do think that there's much more to the immune system. And I think that the immunity is much longer than a lot of the narratives that we're hearing in the news. Uh, maybe we'll need a booster in the future, kind of like influenza. But overall, I think that the immunity is going to be a lot more robust than we're thinking, whether it's from the infection itself or from vaccination. Well, Dr. Chakrabarty, we really appreciate the information today. Keep up the good work and please keep safe. Absolutely. Pleasure to be here. Take care. Dr. Barty, joining us from Mississauga and graduate of Western University and the division head of infectious diseases now at Trillium Health Partners in Mississauga. So fourth wave. Yeah, but it, as Dr. Chakrabarty said, it will likely tie to people not getting their vaccines. Business owners have been going through things you could not sit down with a pen and paper pre-pandemic and think up. Impossible. For the length, for what they have attempted to do, for what the restrictions have done, for what they've had to do to manage. And we are going to spend some time in the next couple of days visiting with business people on this show and on the morning show with Devin Peacock, and on Let's Talk London with Jess Brady, and on the Bill Kelly show. And we're just going to see how things have been going and what it's like to be here, where at 12.01, we're into phase one of reopening for whatever that might be worth. Harold Dewsbury is the owner of London Fine Furniture on Warncliffe Road here in London, and has been nice enough to join us a couple of times on London Live since the pandemic began. Harold, what is it like to be on the eve of the Phase 1 reopening? Ah, oh, it's a big weight off my shoulders. <laughs> it's uh, It's been a long time coming. A little frustrating, you know, the, the fact that we've only been open for, what, five or six weeks this year so far. So I'm, uh, I'm glad it's finally here. When you stop to think about that, here we are, we're in June, and we're in June with double digits, and you say you've been open five to six weeks this year. Can you even believe when those words come out of your mouth? I can't. I really can't. It's, uh, you know, it's, I feel sorry for a lot of businesses out there that, uh, I mean, we, we seem to be in a good position, but some of these other businesses, I don't know how they're going to survive. It's it's crazy. Harold, what has helped you be in a position where at least you have been able to operate? What do you point to? Well, our, our product is all Canadian made and, and, you know, you can customize it and change the colors, change the size, all the rest of it. So it's, it's not something that I can put online and, and sell online. So what what basically has happened for us is last year after we got to reopen again, um, our normal special orders like tripled because nobody was going to Cancun or Hawaii or whatever. So they were spending money on their homes and uh, like our, our special orders just skyrocketed. So a lot of that product in the, has 
you know, that was ordered, say, at the end of the year is coming in in the last month or so. And, you know, people put a 50% deposit down when they buy it. And this time when they're picking it up, uh, they're giving us the other 50%. So my cash flow has been not too bad. But if this thing went on for much longer, I don't know, it, uh, it would have got, you know, it would get scary like it was when we first shut down last year. I really feel sorry for any business that depends on that dollar that comes in that day, you know, and, and they can't be open. Right. We're, we're pretty fortunate that the factories are still allowed to be open and keep shipping us product. So that's, uh, that's what's kind of got us through this. We are talking with Harold Dewsbury from London Fine Furniture on Warncliffe in London. Harold, when we go back to last year, you had some kind of added restrictions in terms of who could be in your location, whereas some of your competitors, because of different things that they might have had, they were able to bring more people in. Did did we see restrictions address that eventually? Yeah, the government switched that. So the, the guys that were selling appliances, uh, all of a sudden they weren't allowed to have anybody in the store, uh, which, you know, hurt them. So, uh, yeah, that, that was addressed. And uh, another thing that was addressed was, you know, the Costco and, and Walmart not uh, being able to, to sell, you know, non-essential items. I don't know if that really helped us, but I'm sure it would help the you know, the, the little store down the road that sells dresses or, you know, shoes or anything like that. It, it probably helped those kind of people. But, um, yeah, it's this whole thing has been it's been a wacky year. Let's put it that way. To run anything where you are selling a product, you have to have a space and that space has rent and that rent has landlords how has that aspect gone for you? Well, last year when I talked to you the first time back in March or April, whenever it was, um, they came out with the, the rent subsidy and our landlord was nice enough to participate in that. And that helped out actually for, I think, about four months that we got that. So that that really really helped out and I really appreciate the fact that he did that for us. Um, the rent subsidy now has changed and the situation that I'm in where, you know, we had like three times the special orders because of that, we didn't qualify for any rent subsidy, you know, since January 1st and on. So, um, you know, we're just fortunate that our cash flow is allowing us to, to keep rolling, but, Again, some of these other stores that depend on every dollar that comes in that particular day, I, I really feel for those guys because I, I don't know what they're doing with their, their landlords, if if the rent subsidy is helping them enough to keep them in business or not. Harold Dewsbury with us from London Fine Furniture on Warncliffe. Harold, how about other government programs? Have you tried to make use of any of those? Yeah, we were fortunate enough to qualify for the Ontario grant and that came twice. So it was like $20,000 each time. Uh, that went a long way towards, you know, paying some of the bills and, and things like that. Like back in January, February, when we were shut down, we kept all of our employees on 
um, because we just had so much coming in from, you know, orders in July, August, September. Uh, this time around, we weren't in a position to do that. So I had to lay the employees off and I think they're pretty excited to come back to work tomorrow. So, um, you know, it's, it's the timing for these grants and, and subsidies and all that. It, it just depends on, you know, what your, what business like. And for us, it's, it's, you know, we take an order today and it's, it's three to four months from now before that order comes in because of COVID. And it really messes up the, the subsidies to, to help out. So, I mean, we've managed to, to survive and, and, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> if you thought, well, when I talked to you last year, I could tell you, my wife and I were, <laughs> we were, we were very nervous, at, you know, to, to know if we could survive or not. And, and it's, it, it was a blessing when we opened uh, after the May two, four weekend last year. Uh, we couldn't believe how, how great business was, but, uh, then when, when they started shutting us down again, it was like, oh no, <laughs> it was like, it was a, a dream come true to get that busy and, and do that much business. But then, uh, when they shut us down again, it's like, oh no, here we go again. So, well, here we go again, and hopefully we don't have to go backward anymore. Harold, as a final question, what was it like to contact your employees and say, hey, Ready to come back when we put you on the schedule? It was uh, it was a good feeling. Yeah, they uh, they're all very excited, and uh, I think uh, everybody's employees are probably pretty excited that are allowed to to go to this first season. Uh, hopefully, we can everybody get vaccinated and, and move on to to the next stage quicker than you know what they originally uh, told us it's going to be, and get some of these restaurants open and you know, all that kind of thing and get the economy rolling. That's what we need. That's it. Well, I think a line that we're going to hear a lot is if we can get through this and hopefully we don't have to deal with, with that too much longer. Harold, thank you for all of your thoughts throughout this. And here's hoping that this is a step in a very good direction. All the best. Please keep safe. Yeah. Thank you very much. I really appreciate you calling me. Anytime. Keep in touch. That is Harold Dewsbury from London Fine Furniture on Warncliffe Road in London. So, in a way, you know, if you were able to have an online presence, if, like in Harold's case, you can find a way to offer something that becomes a product that can't be found in all kinds of places, then and maybe you build new business through all of this. You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.